Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. You know, as the Dean of Beeson Divinity School, I have the great privilege of working with some wonderful faculty members. Men and women of faith who love God with all their heart, who are great scholars and wonderful teachers and just fabulous colleagues. And today I have the privilege of talking with one of those persons. He is Dr. Carl Beckwith. He teaches history and doctrine here at Beeson Divinity School. He joined our faculty in 2007. He's widely published already, even though I would call him still a younger scholar, though he's getting a little older as he years go by, but he's a younger scholar. Uh, he's the author of Hilary of Poitiers on the Trinity, uh, which was published by Oxford University Press. He is the translator of Johann Gerhard's Handbook of Consolations. He's the editor of Ezekiel and Daniel in the Reformation Commentary on Scripture series. He's just a prolific writer and scholar and a fabulous teacher. His training was from uh, St. Olaf's College, Yale Divinity School, and the University of Notre Dame, where he has a Ph.D., uh, with a great patristic scholar, Dr. Brian Daly. All right, let's get into this conversation because, uh, Dr. Beckwith, we want to talk in a moment about your brand new book called The Holy Trinity. But first of all, let me just welcome you back to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Now, I noticed before we get into the content of this book that you dedicated it to your wonderful wife, Julie, and your two daughters. Tell us a little bit about them and why you dedicated it to them. Well, anytime you uh, give years of your life to the research and the writing of a project, uh, many people around you are contributing in ways that often aren't seen mm. uh, by many. And in this particular case, my supportive and wonderful family, uh, Julie and my two girls, uh, they've traveled with me along the way, a long process. Uh, and it seemed fitting to me to uh, to dedicate this work to them and uh, and I hope that, uh, especially my girls, I hope that they uh, they gain great benefit from this book over the years as maybe they can turn back to it down the road and and read about what Scripture has to say about the Trinity. Occasionally when I have visited the church where you all worship, I've seen them together, seat, seated together with as, as a family, uh, Julie with uh, your, your daughters Paige and Madeline, and you at, often preaching there, leading in worship. So family is really important thing to you, isn't it? Well, it is. Certainly it is. It's a gift. Uh, mm -hmm. Family is a gift from God, and it's it's a wonderful calling to be a father and to be a husband. Uh, great blessing. When I was introducing you just a moment ago, I did not mention the fact that you are an ordained minister in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And that this book in particular is a part of a series called Confessional Lutheran Dogmatics. Say a little bit about, number one, why you're a Lutheran, and then what is this series? Well, why I'm a Lutheran, that's a that's its own podcast, I imagine. Well, I know um, I threw you a curveball there, but <laughs> I, hey, you're a professor at Beeson. You ought to be able to handle this. That's right. Well, uh, you know, I think that I'm a Lutheran in part because of the clarity of 
the confession of the gospel found among Lutherans. And for me, especially when I was in college and I was studying scripture, it was those Lutheran voices that especially opened the scriptures for me and showed me the centrality of Christ and especially the the Lutheran liturgy and the service of word and sacrament drew me in the commitment to the history of the church. I'm a patristic scholar as a Lutheran and, and, uh, that's that's a significant thing for me and all of this for me is is what confessional lutheranism is it's a christ-centered scripture-based uh, church that celebrates the voices of the church's history so you did not really grow up as a Lutheran. This is some, a, a path you chose or were chosen for. I did not grow up in the Lutheran church, but the Lutheran church was always around me. Mm-hmm. My uh, my extended family is Lutheran, uh, but I grew up in the, uh, the Church of Christ. So you, this was a decision you made, I guess, as a young adult. You became a Lutheran and then a Lutheran pastor, Lutheran minister as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a calling in your life that shaped you in very significant ways. Now, say a little bit about this series, Confessional Lutheran Dogmatics. First of all, what is a confessional Lutheran? Are there Lutherans who are not confessional? I thought every Lutheran loved the Augsburg Confession. Is that wrong? Well, it, it is wrong, in fact. Uh, there are some Lutherans, international Lutherans in particular, who no longer embrace the authority of the Augsburg Confession. Uh, but a confessional Lutheran is, as you say, it's it's someone who embraces the confessions of the Book of Concord. Uh, and in the Book of Concord, you have, among other things, the Augsburg Confession, Uh, that says that these writings are an accurate exposition of Scripture, that this is where I stand in confessing my faith. Uh, And to be then a confessional Lutheran is to embrace the authority uh, of the Book of Concord as a faithful exposition uh, of Scripture. Uh, And Lutherans, like all all denominations and all churches, there's a diversity uh, among us. And some would gladly say, yes, we are confessional, and others would, would uh, want to uh, qualify that in some way. Well, you know, Beeson is an evangelical interdenominational theological school. We're not anti-denominational, so we encourage all of our faculty and students and staff, everyone, to fully own and embrace the confessional tradition, whatever it is, uh, in which they stand, and that you do that so forthrightly and clearly is a blessing to our community. Now, when you think about Lutheran and you think about confessional and you think about Trinity, are those don't always seem to jive together. I mean, Lutheranism is, most people would say, a movement of reform in the church beginning with Luther in the 16th century. What really connecting that to the Trinity? Why, why is Trinity an important issue for Luther? Now, we know it is for Catholics and for Orthodox, but why Luther? Well, I would say that that uh, the Trinity is a central article of faith, a central feature of all Orthodox Christians. One of the things I say in this book, and I take this from Martin Luther, he says this, uh, Hermann Sasse, a 20th century Lutheran theologian, makes the same point, that as Lutherans, we don't have a Lutheran doctrine of the Trinity that would somehow stand over against, for example, a Roman Catholic or a Baptist doctrine of the Trinity, that as Orthodox Christians, we all share the uh, the faith of Scripture as expressed, say, in the Nicene Creed, whether our churches formally recognize something like the Nicene Creed or not, we recognize the substance of that creed as expressing the witness of Scripture on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as Lutherans, I would I would make the point that as all Christians have the 
identity of God at the heart of who they are and what they are doing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, that informs everything about them. Mm. Now, Lutherans, certainly, when people think of Lutheran theologians or Lutherans, we love to talk about justification by faith. Mm. It's the article on which the church stands or falls, and certainly that is the case. But the justification we're talking about is a justification that we have in Christ as we're brought to him by the Holy Spirit and reconciled to the Father. At the heart of that justification and that that proclamation is the Holy Trinity. And so I would say for Lutherans and indeed for all all Orthodox Christians, uh, the Trinity, the identity of the God that we worship and proclaim, stands at the heart of all that we do. I've often said that Luther did not intend to start a new church. He wanted to reform the one holy Catholic and apostolic church on the basis of the Word of God. And in order to do that, he had to take seriously the Trinity and Christology. This is the common Christian faith. Now, having said that and agreed with you 100% on that point, you do make this point in your book. There is no specific Lutheran doctrine of the Trinity, just as you've said, but you say there is a most certainly a Lutheran approach to the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. What is that Lutheran approach? Well, Luther says on a number of occasions that his argument with Rome does not touch on the Trinity and Christology, that those issues, in fact, arise from Protestant uh, groups. But when we look at how a Lutheran would go about confessing the Trinity, uh, this, I think, uh, would highlight a difference, maybe not so much a difference between Lutherans and others as much as maybe between what the Reformers more generally were doing uh, and, and others. So, for example, you can see a significant difference between the way in which the medieval schoolmen generally went about talking about the Trinity and Luther. The medieval schoolmen followed a very orderly course. They would talk about the doctrine of God. Uh, They would talk about natural knowledge arguments for the existence of God, maybe discussing the divine attributes, and then turn to the doctrine of the Trinity. You don't find any of that in Luther. Luther has a lot to say about natural knowledge of God, for example, but he's not interested in making arguments that reason could perhaps repose in saying there is the existence of God. Rather, what you see with Luther is an emphasis on the will of God for you. Mm. So in other words, it's one thing to know that there is a God, Luther will say, and and he thinks everybody has this notion of a God. But the, the chief thing to know is what is God's will for you? And this we know in Christ. And so the Lutheran approach or the approach you find with Luther, it's very much a Christ-centered approach that focuses on the work of Christ for us. So it takes seriously, for example, no one comes to the Father except by me, says Jesus, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It focuses on Christ. We know Christ by the working of the Spirit, and it's only in knowing Christ as the Son that we come to know the Father. And how do we know the Son? We know him as we look upon the cross, as we there see the maker of the heavens and the earth suffering and dying for my sins and your sins. Mm. It's a Christ-centered approach to the Trinity. I've said, thinking not so much of Luther but the early church, that the classical doctrine of the Trinity is the necessary theological framework for understanding the story of Jesus as the story of God. 
And it is, it has to be Christocentric. We don't, otherwise, we have no access into this just mm-hmm. on the basis of our reason alone or natural knowledge of God alone. So you were referring to the scholastic approach a moment ago where you have this division between de Deo uno mm-hmm. and de Deo trino. Mm-hmm. And that just falls apart in Luther. It's just not there. He doesn't want to pursue that. Nor does he want to pursue, I think this is true of Calvin too, the classical arguments for the existence of God. What's driving that reticence to embrace so much of certainly medieval scholastic theology? There's a criticism that you see. I don't think that Luther says this, but you find this in the Lutheran dogmaticians that follow Luther, that in talking about natural knowledge arguments, for example, that reason can know the existence of God. That's one way of knowing God, but it's an insufficient way. We read in Hebrews, for example, that it is faith that must know that God exists. Well, there's a distinction then that seems to be drawn here by Scripture that on the one hand, while reason may know of this thing called God, this, this, this God that exists, faith knows this God in a different way. And I think that's what Luther is particularly driving at. But there's another issue here, I think, and this is maybe what you were just getting at. For Luther, rightly knowing God begins with Christ. And then we could back up from there and say, where is it that we come to know Christ? And this, I think, is an important distinction for our day. Mm. For Luther, it's the church. Mm. It's the liturgy. It's there in hearing the word of God, in receiving the work of God through holy baptism, in receiving the Lord's Supper. It isn't the classroom. It isn't the academy detached from pulpit and altar and font. Now, that's not to say, now listen, this isn't a criticism at all of, of, say, someone like Thomas Aquinas. Most of his work is commentary. It was done for the church and in the church. So I'm not, I'm not so much criticizing the schoolman as, as trying to show a contrast here. And for Luther in particular, he wanted to do theology in the church through the church, for this is where we come to rightly know God, where we rightly worship God and glorify God. And again, it's a very Christ-centered approach. So whether it's the Trinity, whether it's justification, whether it's the sacraments, there's a sense in which Luther can be redundant. It's all going to focus on Christ, and it's going to focus especially where we're brought to know Christ, the working of God in the church through the liturgy and so forth. And really to try to bypass this the way so much of modern theology seems to do, to have this kind of direct access to this absolute being or what Hegel Mm. calls the absolute spirit, apart from this not just Christocentric, but I would say cruci-centric for Luther. The cross is central there too, Mm -hmm. is really to expose ourselves in a very dangerous way to all kinds of spirits that are out there that are not from God. Mm -hmm. When we think about Let's just take this for a second. If you, The first part of my book, for example, it, the book's divided into three parts, and the first part discusses God, and it discusses specifically how we know God and how we then rightly talk about God. How do we rightly preach and confess God? And I think that first part, in my mind, this is where we especially see the issues that plague us today with modernity where we see these attempts by reason to construct uh, what is called a a perfect being theology, where uh, David Burrell, he he has this expression where when when we release reason, reason begins to construct this God who becomes the biggest thing around, Mm. right? God is the greatest at all the things we most deeply desire and seek. 
Uh, and we start to talk about God in, in terms of attributes and predicates. And what we continuously lose is the fact that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we forget that the work of God is to draw us into a share of the divine life, not for our minds to repose in these elevated ideas about divinity, but to come to know Christ. And this we know, again, by the working of the Holy Spirit through the means of grace in the place of worship where we glorify God. Now, when reason dislodges itself from the way in which God has made himself known, from the places where God has promised to be, this is where idols are made. Mm. And this is where pious-sounding language can be used. But we end up talking generically about God as opposed to Christ, Mm. as opposed to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we end up talking about God, I would say, in safe philosophical ways that either appease our greatest needs— or appease those around us. And all of that, I think the church fathers are of one voice on this, and I think the the Lutheran reformers are, all of that we as believers repent of, because Mm. this is the thing that we aim to do. Reason always wants to say more than it can, and it wants to grab onto something that can give it certainty apart from faith. And so what Luther is doing, I think, is showing us the humility that Scripture calls for as we stand under the Scriptures, as we make ourselves vulnerable to God's revelation of himself and has, as he, again, comes to us in these ordinary places, nothing, nothing extraordinary about water, wine, bread, a sinner speaking the words of eternal life there in front of us. And yet here God takes these means and he delivers to us his grace, his spirit comes to us, draws us in to his divine life. And that, I think, is is Luther's point. This is where we become children of God because it's God working on us, not us working on God. I want to ask you about the doctrine of the Trinity in the early church and the Reformation in terms of heresies because the doctrine of the Trinity was hard fought. It took a long time for the church to consolidate and articulate the doctrine of the Trinity in the classic formulations we find, Mm -hmm. for example, in the Nicene Creed. And along the way, there were all kinds of pulls and tears this way and that way, schisms, heresies. Was that also true in the Reformation? And were were, were there the same heresies or or there were new ones cropping up? Mm -hmm. What would you say about that? Well, I would say that, that there will always be heresy. And the reason there will always be heresy, and this is true of the early church, it was true of the Reformation, and I think it's still true in our day, is because as we go to the Scriptures, and I think this was an extended debate on Scripture, especially in the early church, Arius, mm-hmm. Arius was reading Scripture, reading it poorly, but he was reading Scripture. Eunomius, another great early church heretic, was attempting to do the same. But as we engage the Scriptures, we're constantly, I would say, in this struggle, this struggle to allow God to be the revealer of his word to us, or our desire to limit God's revelation to what may strike us as reasonable or might, again, serve to answer our greatest fears and anxieties. Now, in the early church, you had all sorts of heresies on the Trinity. And as you say, when we think of the the patristic doctrine of the Trinity, if we wanted to use that big phrase, certainly we would want to focus on the 4th and 5th centuries of the early church. Well, Okay, what does that mean then for the second and third century, <laughs> right? Were they not worshiping the Trinity? Uh, well, of course they were. 
what you see in the early church, I would argue, is, again, a lengthy engagement with Scripture. And what happens—you can think of this in your own church. You can see this historically. When somebody comes along and says something that you know to be contrary to Scripture— what does that force you to do? It forces you to go further into the Scriptures that you can better clarify the witness of Scripture and then defend it against what someone is falsely saying. And, well, when Arius arises then in the 4th century, and there are all sorts of historical reasons as to why he could appear in the 4th century as opposed to the 3rd, the Constantine and uh, embracing Christianity and so forth. But when Arius emerges, he begins to say something that is not only contrary to Scripture, but contrary to the life of those living according to the Scriptures. Athanasius, for example, when he he sees someone like Arius and the theology that he's saying, he immediately starts to talk about the salvation we have in Christ. What you say about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit affects the salvation that I lay hold of Athanasius is telling us. Well, that challenge by Arius forces Athanasius back into the scriptures, back into how God makes himself known to us. And -hmm. I think you see the same thing in the Reformation. Mm -hmm. Uh, With the return to scripture, you get a lot of crazy ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is why uh, I would say that, you know, as sola scriptura Christians, we certainly emphasize the normative authority of scripture. But we're never alone in the reading and the studying of that scripture. Uh, We have brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us, who have labored to preach and to teach and to defend that word. Uh, And it's a great blessing that God has preserved these witnesses for us, that we can learn from them. And so we gladly read Athanasius, the Cappadocians, Augustine, even Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther and so forth. Uh, And we can learn from these great preachers and teachers of the faith. We can see where they succeeded, and we can see places where they didn't succeed. Uh, And that's a great lesson for us, I think. One of the things your book does for us, I believe, is to show us the importance of engaging with um, the the terms of the debate. Uh, Calvin, who was a, uh, I will say, a disciple of Luther in a way, though the two never met personally, they did exchange a letter or two. Uh, Calvin tried to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity without using the word Trinity. Of course, he do. It's, that word is not found anywhere in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Therefore, he tried to do that. Uh, but when he was challenged in particular by the anti-Trinitarians, he found that he had to go back to this language, not to depart from the Scripture, but actually to be faithful to the Scripture. And when you talk about a confessional dogmatic tradition, whether it's Lutheran, Reformed, Baptist, whatever it is, Methodist even, that seems to me an important thing, this engagement with the history of the tradition. Mm-hmm. We are a Christian who stands who stand within a certain framework of Christian believing and acting and obeying. And we're not as though we can just exempt ourselves from that and uh, pretend uh, that's optional for us. Mm-hmm. What would you say about that, particularly with reference to your book and, and Lutheranism? Well, I think that uh, it's important to always retain the voice of the church in what we do. Uh, when we begin to speak in a way that is different from the long history of the church, we need to be careful and we need to proceed with caution. That's not to say that perhaps we've found something that needs to be said that hasn't been said. Uh, But when we begin to depart from 
what I would call the grammar of faith used by the faithful generation after generation, we need to be cautious lest we begin to say something that in fact starts to erode our scriptural faith. Now, this is how I think of the question you asked. In the book itself, there's three parts. The first part we already mentioned is on God. The second part's exclusively on Scripture. Uh, it looks to see what God has made known about himself in Scripture. So looking Including at, the Old Testament. Of course, the Old and New Testament, Genesis to the maps, as Dr. <laughs> Devine would put it, wanting to see how God has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there, I'm, I'm exclusively interested in looking at the pattern of Scripture and reading that. And then part three looks at the way in which the church, the patristic and medieval and Reformation in particular uh, church, has clarified and defended that witness. Now, this is how I think of those two things going together. You can't have one without the other, I would say. If all you have is part three, if all you have is the voice of the church, you're missing the very thing that they sought out, and that's Scripture and the interpretation of Scripture. Read the fathers. They're always pointing us to Scripture. If all you have is Scripture, but you don't have then the voice of the church, that's where danger can lurk. That's where you can you can begin to miss things that you shouldn't be missing because you should be paying attention to your elders in the faith, as I would say. Well, I see the relationship in this way. When children learn to talk, they listen to their parents. And by imitating their parents, they take the language of their parents and they begin to use it as their language. But they don't yet know the grammatical rules for that language. That comes later. The grammatical rules are the tradition of the church. This is what the church has shown us. How do we use homoousios? What do we mean by it? What do we not mean by it? How do we use hypostasis? Why are those words important and not other words? That's the grammar, the technical grammar of the faith. But that grammar has something that comes before it, and that is the speaking of Scripture. But those two things, that language and that grammar, they go together in a faithful witness of our faith. So, for example, uh, when I'm at when I'm at Hope and I'm in the Bible class, here I am surrounded by— What's the name of your church? Hope Lutheran Church. That's right. Here I am surrounded by the saints, uh, and they want to know, what does the Bible say about this or that? So that's what we're doing. We're reading closely in the Scriptures. When I'm here in the classroom at Beeson, we want to know, what does the Bible say? But we also want to know, what has the church said on this? Again, where has it succeeded? Where has it not succeeded? But how has the church helped us by crafting a confessional language that will secure that witness over against challenges ancient and modern? And we try to complement these two things. We try to fill out then that witness. It may not be for everyone. Maybe not everyone is able to, to, to read through some of these difficult patristic texts or Reformation texts. Uh, but there are many people who are, and especially those who are preaching and teaching God's Word. They ought to be. Uh, and so these two things, I think, rightly go together. Later this semester here at Beeson, we're going to have a special day. We call it Finkenwalde Day. Finkenwalde was the name of the seminary in Germany during the Nazi period that Bonhoeffer led. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran. You're going to give a talk that day on Bonhoeffer and Luther, in particular Luther and prayer. So we're just about out of time, but I want to ask you this question, not to anticipate your speech that day necessarily. Maybe you have already written it. <laughs> I don't know. Sure. But I want to ask you what the Holy Trinity has to do with prayer. 
you referred to sacraments, you referred to liturgy, you referred to the worshiping community of faith as the context in which we come to know this God who is one in three. So say a little bit about the Trinity and prayer. That's a good question. Um, and I'm just, I'd, I'd say, starting to think through that lecture that I uh, uh, look forward to giving. I would say that when we think of prayer, we ought to first begin with the Trinity and begin with the fact that it is indeed Christ interceding for you and for me, uh, that it is the Spirit that intercedes for us, that we pray to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit, that the words of prayer are yet another gift of God. I mean, God, He provides for us in all of our ways, in ways that we don't even imagine at times. But the first thing I would say about the Trinity and prayer is we begin first with not how we are praying to God, but indeed how God is praying for us and how that prayer then draws us again into the divine life that we would utter these words of concern for ourselves and for others, our petitions to God, worked by the Spirit through the intercessory work of Christ and this to the Father. Maybe the, the last thing I would say there is that the language of prayer is the language of of salvation itself and coming to know both the God who's laid claim to us as his beloved children and ourselves, that as the children of God, we go forth as spirit bearers who by the very spirit utter these petitions to God and always by means of the cross and the accomplished and perfect work of Christ for us, a work that, that really frees us, I think, uh, to begin to pray with boldness and confidence that indeed our prayers are heard by the Father. So it's a big topic. It's one I'm just starting to really mm -hmm. think through. But again, it, it's at the heart of, of who we are as, as Christians. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Carl Beckwith. He is professor of history and doctrine here at Beeson Divinity School. He is an ordained minister in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's a wonderful scholar and author of many books, including the one we've been talking about today, The Holy Trinity, a part of the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatics series. Thank you so much, Dr. Beckwith, for this conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.